Good morning. I'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 56, uh, beginning at verse 1. Keep, or thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to the love, the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offering and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Scripture, as it is written, the word of God is already blessed. And we focus on verse 7, where Isaiah writes, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Here it is, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Scripture, as it is written, the word of God, we know, is already blessed. All are invited, but the question is, are all welcome? All are invited, but are all welcome. In Isaiah 56 Uh, we enter into a backdrop of severe hardships for many of those who are returning from exile. They're coming now having been uh, exiled into Babylon because of their disobedience and their rebellion, because their heart was not right. They were not acting justly. They were not uh, uh, acting or loving mercy. They were not walking humbly with their God. Uh, And yet they thought by merely going through the rituals of sacrifice, by being religious, they thought that that would then right quell uh, God's anger that's been directed towards them. They thought if they can just go to church or bring the sacrifices or do those things, those rituals that we put our faith in without living the life, that that would be pleasing to God. But one of the things we find is that theology is nothing uh, without a sociology. So theology and sociology goes together. If we think about theology, we're talking about not just the study about God, but we're talking about a relationship with God, how one relates to God. When we think about sociology, then we're looking at how people live out these truths, right? Sociologically, how people live in relationships. And we need to understand that theology is nothing without contacting uh, sociology. So we understand as we look at the scripture 
The theology may be simple. The theology is real clear, and God commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. The theology is real clear that as God looked at Adam there in the garden, and he says what? That it is not good for man to be alone. And so God said, I will make him a helper. I will then fashion someone so that he can be in relationship with it's not just about theology. The theology was simple, and yet the, the sociology became complicated because it's in this context of relationship that we saw Adam and Eve's disobedience. It's in the Mosaic Law where we read constantly God's theology, what it takes to be right with God, what it takes to approach God, how we should now, right, have no other gods or prepare no other graven images. So God lays out the theology. The theology is clear, right? Don't take the Lord's name in vain to uh, keep the Sabbath and, and make sure that it is holy. And so God's theology is clear, but the sociology, love your neighbor as yourselves. So that is uh, true in the Mosaic Code. But also we find in the book of prophets, whether it is Isaiah or whether it's Jeremiah or Micah or Amos, right? God lays it out. Haggai, he reminds us that we ought to have theology, but also our theology ought to impact our sociology. The theology of loving one's neighbor, the theology, as Micah says, we ought to act justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with our God is clear. So now I recognize that although the theology is simple, that I am supposed to love God with everything, that my heart my mind, my soul, and my strength. But I also recognize the sociology can be complicated because now I have to live out my love for God, not just simply in times of worship, not just in singing songs, not just in giving uh, tithes and offering, all right? Not just in all of the formality uh, of ritual worship, but uh, it is sociological in that my theology has to impact my community. It has to impact lives because my theology is lived out among people. John says, my beloved, let us not love in word only, but let us love in what? Word and deed. And so as we understand then that theology is anemic without sociology, that the two needs one, need one another, they are complementary truths, then it's important that we learn and live out this because that's what kindred has to be about. Kindred just can't be about us coming together and singing some songs and exchanging pulpits, right? Doing some community service, having some Bible studies. If our theology does not inform, shape, and impact our sociology, but we soon find this truth out. Theology is simple. It's clear who we are and what we're supposed to do. It is the sociology that's complicated, and so uh, this is not just true of us, but as we go back in time and visit Isaiah chapter 56, you'll find this was also true of them. And so as these exiles return back, remember they've been gone now for 70 years, and as they are making their way back uh, from exile, things have changed. So you have, as they were carried off, by the prophetic word of Habakkuk and Jeremiah, that God promised 
that they will only be there for 70 years. But he says, after 70 years, I'm in Jeremiah 29. You can read verses 5 all the way down to, to 11. Then, you know, after 70 years, God says, now I'm going to return you back. And so uh, through King Cyrus of Persia, as the Medo-Persians have now dominated the Babylonians, and, and now an edict has been given that those who are in exile are able to return back to their homeland. And so they come back in waves. They come back in phases. We have uh, Shazbazar and Ezra as they bring back a group. Then you have Zerubbabel who brings back a group. And then ultimately you have Nehemiah who comes. And so you see this regathering, the repatriation of Jerusalem as the people of God make their way back. This is important because for some, right, they were young. They were, they were uh, extremely young when Jerusalem was overtaken by the Babylonians. And so they scarcely remember what the city and how the times were. And then you have others who were born in Babylon, and all they could do is hear the stories told by their parents and their grandparents of how things used to be how they could describe how the temple was and how the worship was and how they can worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness and how they can walk in the holy city. And so they armed with, uh, with these stories that have been given to them by their elders. Now they make this 700-mile track. They're moving from uh, Babylon, now making their way back to Jerusalem. But the issue then is as they come back, what will they find as they transition out of exile and make their way back? They're making their way back with hope and future. They're making their way back with expectation. But will it be as they are expecting and they are hoping? So as they make their way back into this, this community, what they find is this is a community in hardship. They have been facing difficulties. Uh, you have corrupt civil and religious leaders. You have uh, infighting. You have factions. You have land grabs, right? You have those who are economically disadvantaged. We have those who have been marginalized and ostracized uh, from, from the temple, from worship, from community life, kind of what we deal with today. Right. We deal with marginalization and oppression. We deal with uh, corrupt civic and yes, to our shame, uh, religious leaders. We deal with uh, the infighting, not only in the church, but infighting within the community. We deal with politics and how politics has invaded uh, the body of Christ how we use words and describe ourselves not as brothers and sisters in Christ, not as those who share the same blood of Jesus Christ, not those who are characterized by one faith and by one Lord and one baptism. No, we are now, we are uh, conservative, we are liberal, we are moderate, right? We are right-leaning and left, as Pastor Alex shared with us, that now those kinds of, of descriptives now have entered into the church and now, right, reason, human reason, human ideology and philosophy are dominating the ministry landscape. And so now there's a constant tension in the church. There's a constant tension in the community. And these expectations, these, these things that we are uh, anticipating are now clashing. 
And so as these groups uh, migrate, the foreigner, the eunuch, as they migrate and make their way back to Jerusalem, they come to this divided city. And the interesting thing about it is the boundaries have already been redrawn and renegotiated. Who's going to be here and who's going to live here? Okay, the the school system has already been set up. Who is able to go to this school and who must go to this school over here? Right. The housing is already set up. The ethnic enclaves, the lines have been drawn already. Okay, economically, who's going to have this kind of job and who's going to have that kind of job? Right. As it relates to the judicial system, because it was corrupt already. Who is going to get the favor? You have two people doing the same crime one because of a different hue is going to get one sentence the other because of another hue or another economic background is going to get a a, a different sentence so you have all of this which is disconcerting we have uh, this context now which is constantly in conflict so that's not something that was simply true about Jerusalem uh, when these exiles have come back But it's also something that's true right now. So as the exiles are coming out and they're transitioning into this new life, I want you to think about this for a moment, that they are bringing their culture with them. They're bringing their languages with them. They're bringing their their sense of spirituality. And so now what you have in in Jerusalem, which used to be focused solely on the worship of Yahweh, has now been repopulated with foreigners who now have syncretized, they have mixed the religion. And so now all of a sudden, these new boundaries have been drawn. And now these new boundaries have been negotiated and established. It is into this context we find Isaiah's story. It is here we find this great tension between what God promised to do and the reality and the uncertainty and instability of their future right now. See, God gives Isaiah a future of inclusion, but yet in their reality, they're living in a reality of exclusion. Amen. We have drawn boundaries and we have set limits on who can now obtain education. We have drawn boundaries and we have set limits now on who's going to be able to be voted in, who's going to be able to hold office, who's going to be a leader, what songs are we going to sing, right? What uh, rituals are we going are going to take place? And so this inclusive uh, vision that God gives is under threat. Amen. Because as the people are coming in and they're confronted with this vision of a new reality, then now they're challenging God's vision of inclusivity. They're challenging God's vision that includes all people. See, because as God comes to us, he, we must be reminded that he has always been a God of inclusion. He has always been a God who says, whosoever will, let him come. Amen. Abraham and the children of Abraham are not those simply related to him by blood, by ethnicity. No, the children of Abraham truly are those who come to God by faith. And so it is important that we understand Amen. And recognize the boundaries that we have set up, the limitations that we have established. So now we can now uh, 
take this back in the name of Jesus Christ. That as kindred, we're not just about having a good time for six weeks, but we are committed to living out our new reality. See, and that's what God was trying to teach them. What he was trying to teach them is that his salvation is for all people. And so as his salvation is for all people, its salvation is inclusive of all. Then as they're bringing these new cultures, as they're bringing now these new ethnicities, as they are coming together, you have now a struggle with identity and you have a struggle for resources. Right. So you have limited resources. And now who truly are the people of God? And I think that was Jesus's biggest challenge that he faced all often with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, from a doctrinal perspective, right, uh, were were those who were committed to truth in terms of understanding their theology, but they would often fall short in their sociology. They were good in their theology. So Jesus says, hey, what they teach you, that you do. Amen. But don't you do as they do. They know what they're talking about in terms of theology, but they have a poor sociology because their application of that truth always causes problems. Why? Because they are not about inclusivity, but they are about exclusivity. Amen. And so as we move forward in our sermon, we want to begin to attack certain truths. Okay. And that is God has an inclusive vision and God's vision is for all people. So therefore, the unity of the relationship between God and humanity is theological, and yet this impacts the relationship between human being and human being, which is sociological. And so here's our big idea. This is what I want you to capture, that God empowers his people to see the very best of human potential in relationships with others. See, when I limit myself in who I'm going to be in relationship with because of their educational level or because of uh, their, uh, their spirituality or even their sexuality, okay, or because they're economically disadvantaged or whatever construct I put as a barrier, then I'm saying that, God, you don't have the power to help us to overcome, that I cannot see the value of having a relationship with this person when we must recognize that all human beings, whether they know God or not, are made in the image and likeness of God. And so we have to remember that where we are constantly seeking exclusion, superiority, right? That God is the God who seeks inclusion. And God is saying that no human being is inferior to another human being. See, if we want to experience as kindred, if we want to experience the power of God, then we have to understand there is no greater power than when the people of God come together. Amen. Paul says in Ephesians chapter three, that it is the church 
that is the manifold wisdom of God, that when we gather together, there is no unity like it on earth. And when we come together, we have power. When we come together, we have wisdom. When we come together, we can move mountains by faith. There is nothing that you and I cannot do together. And so we have to understand that as God is bringing the people back, just like one day we will now transition out of the pandemic, out of this social unrest, out of this hatred, Right. And the hatred is not just limited to African-Americans and Asians, although right now that seems to be in the forefront. Right. People have been hating one another for a long time. Now, the problem is when one group exalts uh, hatred over another, the reality is all hate is wrong unless you're hating sin and evil. All right. So if we're not hating sin and evil. Then it's important for us to recognize as the people of God, that every person has redeeming value. There is no person that cannot be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and through the power of the gospel. Amen. And that's why the Bible says that the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation all, to all those who what? Who are rich? No. Who are of a certain ethnicity? No, right? Who are of a certain economic blood? Is your bloodline economic disadvantage or advantage? No, it's to all those who believe. See, the theology is simple, but it is our sociology that is so complicated. We mess these things up because we would rather sit here and, and, and uh, meander or banter in philosophical fights, right? We're talking about, is he the same substance or is he another substance? Is Jesus literally in the blood or is it, you know, is this a metaphor? So we will sit here and split hairs about things that may be important, but are not changing the trajectory of somebody's life. And we need to get out of this. The Bible never tells us to run around and, and argue with people. The, the, the best testimony and most effective testimony that reveals the life and the power of Jesus Christ is when your life is changed. When your conversation changes, when your character changes, when you are imbued with power and your commitment to God transcends that on a human level, then that bears witness that there is a God. So you don't have to run out and try to persuade people that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, and that Jesus rose again. No, all you have to do is live out the story. The theology is simple. The problem and what complicated is, amen, our sociology. Watch this as Isaiah helps us out. Amen. I'm hoping I'm helping somebody right now because I want to see the good that's in you. I don't want to miss the blessing that God has for me because of my prejudice or because of my bias, or because I'm overly or I'm too educated to see that you have value. Amen. So in Isaiah chapter 56, we see something interesting. In Isaiah 55, God invites. He invites all those who are thirsty. He says, if you're thirsty, amen, come. If you're broken, Come, if you are self-sufficient, you think you don't need anybody, God says, come, buy and eat. He invites 
right? Not based on culture. He invites. Not based on economics. He invites. Not based on political leanings. No, he invites those who are thirsty, those who are hungry for righteousness. And then he gives them a challenge. He says, seek me. And if you seek me, you'll find me. Call on me because I am near to you. So we have in Isaiah 55 an invitation from God, amen, that now has no boundaries. It just includes all who are thirsting for righteousness. And so we find then in Isaiah 56, verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice, do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Now, I just want to spend a little time in dealing with this idea of justice and righteousness, particularly when you see these two words together. Uh, justice is not just about that which is punitive. It's not about retributive, that which now deals with the legalities of law, right? But justice deals with, right, being in uh, right decision or right alignment with God and then now giving the people or giving that community, right, what is due them. So when I'm acting justly, I am giving you what is due you. What is due you? Respect is due you. Honor is due you. I value you. Why? Because you are valued by God, that you are honored by God, and that you are respected by God. So justice then demands, amen, that I give you what is due you, not based upon human reasoning not based upon uh, some social construct that human beings have constructed in order to keep some people in and then keep some people out. No, no, we have to now base our criterion on what God has said. So when we are dealing with justice, then I'm acting in such a way to give you what is due you. But then righteousness is not just simply having a, or a condition of being right with God. Righteousness and being aligned with right then means doing right. So I do right towards you. And I'm doing right towards you because I'm in right alignment with God. And because I'm in right alignment with God, then justice and righteousness is not just simply about, amen, understanding some legal concepts. But justice and righteousness is about now recognizing that when a judicial system is unjust, it's recognizing that it's not fair for the schools in the north to have all of these quality teachers and books and programs and then school on the south side, right, lack quality teachers, quality books, quality educational paths. No, that's not fair. See, that's what it means to, to act justly and deal with righteousness. It's not fair that people can't afford to live in a community because the rents are skyrocketing, all right, and that the housing prices are constantly going up. It's no fair that somebody can't live in a, a community that they can afford because of gerrymandering or some kind of redlining, I'm sorry, some kind of redlining that now prevents people from living in a certain neighborhood. There are so many boundaries and barriers that we have put up in front of people, but it's not just limited 
to uh, the, the, the community, but it's also inside of the church, where now we have set up, right, these cultural barriers. Now we have set limits on who can come. So we run out and we invite everybody to church. But yet once we invite you to church, which we should invite you to know Jesus in reality, we then exclude you. And there are some places and spaces uh, and some ministries and some positions that are off limits to people. And that, I believe, my brothers and sisters, is the problem that they're facing in Isaiah 56. The problem is God's theology is simple. Do what is right. Do what you would have somebody to do to you and for you. But no, he says, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath and not profanes it and keeps his hand from doing evil. How many times have we reduced the word of God to the ritual as if we think the ritual is the end all be all? No, see, the, that's the theology. That's the, the theological underpinnings. What is so important is that God's saying you living out the reality of righteousness. You're living out the reality of your worship and your worship is not demonstrated in how many books of the Bible you know. You're, the reality of your relationship and your worship is not limited to the fact that maybe you give an offering or there's a building with your name on it. No, the reality of worship should be an expression of one's alignment with God. Amen. The fact that I love what God loves and I loathe what God loathes. See, that's the issue. There's a disconnect. We are, we are erudite in theology. Amen. But we are anemic as it relates to our sociology. See, the power of God has to be revealed when we come together, but we need to go in and remove those barriers. We say that all are uh, invited, but I really don't believe that all are welcome. Watch this, because in verses three and four, he says something that's powerful. He says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Watch this. As the people come back into Jerusalem, they're coming back into a new reality with embedded boundaries that have been negotiated by those who were left behind and those new settlers who came in. But now you have a group of people who are coming in and now they are the marginalized and the outcasts. 
And they're coming in, watch this, they're coming in not by their own will and desire, but it is because of the power of God that released them from bondage. It was God who drew them with his outstretched arm and his heart filled with compassion that he brought them back to the city because he says, I'm going to gather them together. Why, God? Because I have a plan. Amen. Seattle and its surrounding uh, uh, cities, right, and these areas, they are experiencing uh, an influx, influx of immigrants and migrants. Why? Because God is up to something in this area, and he's bringing people from different faiths, and he's bringing people with different cultures, and he's bringing people with different ethnicities, and he's bringing us all together because God has a vision, and he has a plan that's bigger, amen, than our little vision that is broader than anything that we can dream of or imagine, and so God is bringing the the foreigner and the eunuch, the eunuch. Let's just deal with the eunuch for a moment. Eunuchs, according to Deuteronomy 23, verses 1 through 3, were excluded from uh, engaging in or entering into the temple. And they were excluded because a eunuch represented two things. Number one, a eunuch was one who had been castrated. Okay, now that castration can either be willful or that castration could be now because of some position. Okay, or Jesus said you can be born that way. And to to the Jews, a eunuch was neither male nor female. Right. Because they lack the ability to procreate. And so the eunuch, because of their malady. And because of their, their, those who were castrated for economic reasons, okay, because they wanted to be in the palace or, right, because of their ambitions and aspirations, those were precluded from going into, amen, the, uh, the temple. But also in verses 2 and 3 of Deuteronomy chapter 23, he also excludes the Ammonites and the Moabites. The, the Ammonites and the Moabites were, were the, the lineage or the sons of, an, of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. And so Ammon or Ami and Moab now, right, not only were they products of an incestuous relationship, but then when the Israelites wanted to pass through their lands and needed some water, that they forbid them. And so God said, because of that, then now the Ammonites and the Moabites are excluded. Watch this. He didn't say the foreigner. He said the Ammonites and the Moabites. But see, the religious leaders, as religious and civic leaders do, we have a propensity now to determine who we want in and who we want out. See, so now all of a sudden we have elevated the Ammonite or broadened is a better word, expanded the foreigner or the Ammonite and the Moabite to include anybody that's of a different ethnicity, anybody that's of a different culture. And that sounds just like us. See, because we want to be in control. We want to use power not to empower people, but we'd rather use power in order to dominate people. See, that was the problem when this influx of exiles were coming in, now those who had a rightful claim 
to land that had been stolen. Land now, right, that their foreparents wrestled going all the way back to Joshua and Caleb. That now when they came to lay claim, when you have these women who are now used to walking in freedom and walking in authority, now they come back and now they're restricted. You got to sit out here with the children and sit out here with the Gentiles. Those who had access to the presence of God, amen, while they were out in exile because there was no temple, who were free to pray to God, free to approach God with holiness and contrition, were now forbidden because the boundaries had been marked out by men who sought to dominate and to control. But God says that now I'm doing a new thing, that I'm changing this thing up. And the reality is we can't handle God's new thing. We, we can't handle the fact that the church is a dynamic organism. organism. And any organism lives and anything living changes. Uh, let me say that again. See, if the church is a living organism, right, anything that's living changes. But for some reason, we want the church to remain static. We want the church to remain our own private museum because that's what many of them are turning into. And so we want to control what people think. We want to control who has access. And so in, uh, in Isaiah 56, God is messing up their minds because he says he not only is bringing in the eunuch, but he's also bringing in the foreigner. And there is no difference in the eyes of God between the eunuch and the foreigner. And you say, well, wait a minute, pastor. I thought God in, Jer I mean, in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, I thought he said they couldn't come. Ah, I thought they couldn't enter. But now he says he's about to allow them to come. So God, are you wishy-washy? God says, no, you need to understand. You need to understand progressive revelation. You need to understand that what they could understand when you were an infant, now that you are more mature, you're ready to experience more of me. You experience, you're ready to see more. You're ready to do more because you are no longer a child. Amen. You are somebody now that can be entrusted with responsibility. See, and it's important for us to understand that's why you can't be married to one scripture and look at that scripture as if that scripture is static. The scripture is dynamic. It is the living Word of God. Amen. The writer of Hebrews says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That the word of God penetrates and then it permeates the soul. Amen. It brings revelation and illumination and conviction. That's how powerful the word of God is. See, God sent this prophet Jeremiah to remind the people of one thing, that he is the God of all nations. Amen. He is the God who created all things. He is the God, amen, who holds all things together. It was the psalmist who said the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and the world and they who dwell therein. God has never, ever 
surrendered control and charge to this world that he created. We have to recognize, as he said in Isaiah chapter 55, that my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways and my thoughts, my purposes beyond yours. See, you and I think that God needs us to counsel him. We think that God is asking our opinion. He's not asking our opinion. He's God. Amen. The omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God who stands all by himself. He says in Psalm 50, even if I was hungry and I needed something, I wouldn't ask you. Amen. So why in our, our reasoning that we think that we know better than God? He brings it to a head in verse 7, where he says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. We get stuck sometimes in the fact that he said, My house shall be called a house of prayer. And we know that prayer is so important in the life. It's the lifeline, the lifeblood. Amen. The heartbeat, the pulse of the life of a believer. That we should be men and women who pray to God, who are in the intimacy with God. That intimate exchange that of, of asking and seeking and knocking and then the quietness of listening. But also we have to recognize, amen, that he says it's a, a house of prayer for all people. I'll say that again. The word all is so powerful. The word all is so important because it means the complete, that which is whole, that which is entire. When you're talking about all, then you're talking about each and every part. You're talking about something that is consistent, something that's inclusive, that, that omits nothing in nobody. And so when God says that it's for all peoples, then God really means all. He didn't mean some. Amen. He didn't say because you have this pedigree or this education or this skin hue. No, he says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. So remove all of the uh, impediments. Remove all the barriers that you set up. And we said, well, God, I didn't set up any barriers. You did. Well, you didn't read Ephesians. What Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that God has torn down the wall of separation. Amen. That which separated Jew and Gentile, he did it in Jesus Christ, that all of us can now approach and have access to Almighty God. See, because sometimes we get stuck in the Torah. We get stuck in the Hebrew Bible, and we New Testament Christians say, well, that doesn't pertain to me. But see, Paul says that no, he has torn down that wall. He has torn down the wall that the Jews had erected, that had a sign on the outside that separated the court of the Gentiles from that of the women, the children, and the men. And it said to enter into, if you enter or pass this point, you come, amen, keeping your own life in peril. And in other words, if you cross this, 
Amen. Something is going to happen to you. And Paul says that wall of separation, not the wall that God created, not the barrier or the boundary or the limits that God drew. No, these are the things that we drew. These are the things that we put as impediments and stumbling blocks. Paul says, through Jesus Christ, through his blood, has called us to be one body. He's called us and made us and given us one faith. There's one Lord. There's one baptism, one spirit that holds us all together. If all are invited, then all should be welcome in the body of Christ. Don't bring me into your church and then tell me that I can't sing in the choir. Don't tell me that I can't be in leadership. Don't tell me amen, that I can't serve. Don't bring me in and then try to pat me on the head as if I'm some kind of piece of furniture, amen, or I'm some kind of peon or lackey. No, when you invite me into your church, then I ought to be welcome in your church. I ought to be able to come and participate in the life of your church. See, because as it goes in the church, it will also go that way out in the community. Amen. If we learn about the power that God has given to each and every one of us, there is no force in, on earth more powerful than the community of faith. You get two or three believing people together and watch us turn this city upside down. But we have to overcome our cultural biases, our prejudices, and our bigotries. Jesus taught his disciples this wonderful truth in Matthew chapter 15. As he's talking to the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman, who approaches Jesus and she says, son of David, I need your help. And the Bible says that Jesus was silent. And the Bible says, and she kept on asking and talking to Jesus. And he was silent. And his disciples said, master, shall we send her away? And Jesus says, no, and, and begins to engage in dialogue with the Canaanite, the Syrophoenician woman. And as he's dialoguing with her, he, she's asking Jesus for a help. And then Jesus seems like he said something uh, that, that is uh, uh, something that's coarse, where he says that it's not meat, it's not right to give, right, uh, the, the bread, right, to the dogs or the wild beasts. And she says, yes, but at least is the dogs are able to eat the food or the crumbs that fall off of the master's table. And Jesus now, because of that, says, you've said well. And now by your faith, be it done. And she wanted her daughter healed. Well, what was the issue? See, the issue for Jews and Gentiles was this, that if a Gentile wanted to become part of the faith, they, they had to test them to see if their coming was generous or, or, or if it was genuine. And so Jesus was testing the woman and he was laying out for his disciples the boundaries, the limits, amen, the barriers that the Jews would put on people. And Jesus told her it was by your faith that now your child is healed. How did he know she had faith? Because she called him 
the son of David. She knew something about the God of the Hebrew Bible. Amen. And if we can only introduce people to the God of the Bible, right, we can turn this city, we can turn this community, we can turn this world upside down. The reality is we're sleeping and we've ostracized so many who can add value to what we're doing. Kindred, let's not close our heart and our minds to those who we have deemed not worthy. God, the sovereign God, says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. That's God's story, and we're sticking to it. God bless you.